which role will wearables like virtual reality devices play in the future of diagnostics? Um, just talking about neurological insights, there are companies out there who are already able to derive, um, you know, early stages of dementia. So really detecting. And uh, yeah, one of the things that I, I can say is that, um, yeah, um, we are working hard, very hard towards the vision. And I can just say um, this is a promise that I can give. Once, uh, you know, as long as we have the funds to do that and the energy to do that, we will work towards that goal. Um, again, I personally also believe that this is a future where we all want to live in. In this episode, I'm excited to talk with Adrian Brodesser, CEO of Soma Reality, to explore the latest developments in technology and their impact on society. In this episode, we discuss topics like how to find product market fit for a VR-based product, the core business of Soma Reality, VR use cases in healthcare and sports, use cases for VR-based diagnostics, and challenges of entrepreneurship. Soma Reality is a company specializing in developing virtual reality devices for diagnostic purposes. The team develops digital biomarkers based on eye tracking for continuous neurological monitoring. Adrian will be joining the podcast to discuss the use of virtual reality in diagnosing neurological diseases and how these devices are revolutionizing the way we approach healthcare. From Alzheimer's to Parkinson's, virtual reality is providing doctors with new tools to understand and treat these complex conditions. Adrian Protesser has a background in biomedical engineering and cognitive robotics. His first startup was a solution for older people who fell and could not get up on their own that won the AWS Pitch Night. Currently, he works as CEO at the deep tech startup Soma Reality and as a side hustle helps Caritas Vienna with the topic of open innovation. Join us as we delve into the world of VR and healthcare with Adrian Brodesser and learn how his technology is changing the game for the diagnosis and treatment of neurological diseases. I hope you enjoy this episode the same way as I did. And we should change to English, uh, of course. Yes. So, yes. At the beginning of German. Uh, did you know that it's possible to stream to Twitter? So, no. So I, I'm personally not a Twitter user, to be honest. Um, but, really? Um, yeah. So, no. I, I, I didn't know, to be completely fair. I actually was not sure if you can... Um, yeah. So, I, I've never used Twitter, to be completely transparent. So, um, yeah. I, I wasn't even sure that you can um, post videos. I thought it... Um, that's probably a little bit embarrassing, but I only thought that you can post text. <laughs> uh, I always thought it. And then this uh, restream service asked me if I want to stream to Twitter. And yeah, of course, I mean, why not? I mean, if it's, if it's Twitter, it's Elon Musk now owns Twitter. So it's a must to stream there. I'm amazed that people exist these days that don't use Twitter, especially when they are in the virtual reality space. I thought everybody is on Twitter. Yeah, I don't know. I never, I mean, I was never that big in social media, but just in general, um, I don't know. I never really, you know, just some social media just really catch you. And Twitter for me, it was, I don't know. It never really hooked me. 
So, yeah. No, I, I grew up with that in the 90s, and I think this is a good starting point for our for our recording and for our topic. Um, I listened today to Jason Calacanis on the Team Ferris podcast this morning when I was out running, and he was talking about his days in the 90s. In the 90s, the internet was young, and he said something that's uh, pretty amazing, and I think this is a good frame for this episode with you. He said that back in the 90s, the usual thing was... Uh, that when he finished his college degree, he looked for a job and usually did 16 hours days as an employee in a company. So Tim Ferriss wrote this book, The Four-Hour Workweek. And I thought basically we had four-hour work weeks four times a day back then. And almost nobody was thinking about starting a company, starting something new. There were these hero stories, of course. So it was Microsoft and Apple back in the 90s. They started in the 70s and they were big hits, but these were more or less the outliers. And then there were these uh, young companies back then. It was, uh, for example, PayPal was completely new. Amazon was completely new. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg didn't even start Facebook back in the 90s. And there were thousands of other companies starting. And this was the first time when people tried to get into entrepreneurship, but the reputation was very bad. So basically in my social circle, the philosophy was, if you are not good enough for a big corporation, you then start a company. So it was not the first choice. The first choice always was going to a company. and then when you don't succeed in the, on that level, then you can start a company. And you have to try something your own, right? You have to try something <laughs> on your own because the alternatives are basically non-existent. So yeah. uh, it would be living on the streets uh, and not having a job. But for someone who got a college degree, I think this isn't an option to completely drop the whole life and uh, do nothing and live completely frugally with one or two euros per day. Um, but the... The, the, this entrepreneurship thinking changed completely in the last 20 years. And when we spoke uh, about your company, I was pretty amazed that uh, right after college, you started uh, a company. Can you give me a little bit more background to why you decided to do that? Yeah, of course. Um, so just to, to follow up on the one thing that, um, you know, entrepreneurship just really changed. I think actually today, I have the feeling, and you know, everyone lives in a bubble, but I personally have the feeling that it is actually too romanticized to some extent. So, uh, and I think that also answers the question. So when um, I was in my studies, so I studied biomedical engineering um, with a focus on cognitive robotics, and I was never really good with maths or physics or anything. And so I really struggled. Um, and um Nonetheless, I finished, um, but the last the chapter, of course, was writing my thesis, and I did this on the German Aerospace Center in the Institute for Cognitive Robotics, and I was sitting there, and I was um, developing like um, a feedback, a haptic feedback system for myoelectric prosthesis, and I was sitting there, and there were so many smart people, and I was thinking to myself, if I follow down that path of like being an engineer, I will always be compared to these people. I know I have strengths, but it's not mathematics. It's not physics. These people are really good in this stuff. And um, if I follow down that path, I will always be one of the worst. And so after my studies, I went to Canada. Just really, it was like a round trip, basically, um, of the West Coast. 
which was amazing. It was like one of the best holidays I've ever had. And then I came back and I started my first job. Um, I don't know why, but as an IT consultant, it was. Where did you start? Which company? Let's make a shout out. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, it, you know nothing against the company. Uh, the the yeah. company is called Jagger, um, and mm. they're in uh, procurement. They're they're doing great. Um, and everyone was super nice there, but um, of course, there's just the discrepancy between um, swimming in glacier seas and complete freedom to starting the first job at the IT consultant was just too big for me. And so I really, I decided I, I had to quit and start something, which brings me back to the point of, you know, in my head, I had this idea of entrepreneurship, very, very romanticized. I, mm -hmm. I had the feeling, of course, I read some books back then, of course, Elon Musk, uh, you know, everyone was uh, looking up to him. He was slowly became like this idol. Um, and um, I basically, I never really thought about that this might be difficult or maybe let me rearrange. Um, I had the feeling you always hear it will be very hard and one in nine companies only succeed, but you romanticize that it will be hard. And then once you're actually in it and you actually experience something is hard and it is really hard. It is not romanticized. It is being hard. It is really hard. Then you slowly start recognizing, okay, wow, there is actually, there is a reason why so many startups fail. Um, but yeah, long story short, um, I really just started it after my studies because I had the feeling I'm still young. I need to try something and how hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> how hard? What, what, what do you say? Let's talk about hardship. How hard is it? Do you have some, some, some stories to tell? Um, I mean, of course, I also don't want to be encouraging, uh, discouraging for people who listen to this. But yeah, it is really, really hard. Um, I mean, I, to be completely fair, I would have never thought that it is this difficult. Um, just the complexity of working with people compared with trying to develop a new technology in, um, in synergy with trying to keep up with, you know, generating revenue, keeping up with investors, keeping up with managing your cash flow, just the complexity. And then, of course, things happen like a war or something you cannot control at all. Um, and suddenly things change again. Um, so just the complexity is really, if I have to really break it down to one thing, I really think the main challenge is just really the complexity just managing everything and trying to once one part starts lacking identifying that part and trying to push that part so that everything somehow is aligned i think that is the real big challenge yeah that's true i had a similar moment when uh i started in the life science industry in 2006 before i was a merger acquisition before that i was uh, at the university i had some startup moments with trying to start something in the 90s but due to lack of capital in the area nobody wanted to invest in startups it uh, ended very quickly uh, before the complexity set in and the experiences i made with political organizations or fraternities were pretty much comparable to startup situations or something new managing people stuff like that but the great thing with big corporations always was everything is set up and when i started working in a big corporation i didn't realize that this is wonderland every process is in place it's audited it works people have their roles they are completely trained in what they need to do they exactly know which outcome they need to produce to know the connection of the outcome to the revenue so everything is really nice and when you are in virtual acquisition and you want something to be done you have there are a lot of people who help then I started in a startup 
And the first thing that I realized was that I had so many ideas in my mind, what we need to do and uh, what is missing here. And then I looked around and saw basically just me and uh, a handful of people who are running the show. So learning to scale down, to find, to prioritize, to find what is the right step for today and not feeling overwhelmed by the complexity and by the many things you potentially could do, but just picking the next step and starting to work hard for one day on this one task and then switching to the next task is something that I basically never had to do in a, in a big corporation. Yeah, learning to say no, right? I think that is, I'm still learning that. It, it is so difficult to, um, when you start something, of course, the first thing is you just try to get any traction or any customer or any feedback. And then, of course, this can get like, quote unquote, addicting, just seeing more people saying what you do is great. But then, of course, there comes this critical point where if you not start saying no to people or to projects, of course, then you also die because you need to focus. And so it's like really... Um, yeah, it, it's highly complex. Um, but of course, we all do this for a reason. Um, so there must be some positive parts to it as well. What is what is your reason that you stay in the game? Um, so completely honest, I think um, for me, it's two things. If The first one is I really enjoy this, I don't know, I guess you could call it like accelerated learning path. I really think... Um, if I look back just the last two years, I've learned so much and I don't think there's any field out there where I've, where I've, I've could have learned just, just similar amounts of learnings. And I mean, really life learnings. I don't think there's any other opportunity out there for something like this. And the other part really as cliche as it sounds is really is the team. I think it is really. If you start something and you experience so much hardship, and of course, I don't want to sound like everything is bad. There are great, great moments. But of course, most of the time, building a startup is really, really difficult. A lot of pain, a lot of difficult situations. And so it's, I think it's basically the same with, you know, in, in finding a partner. It's like when you experience a lot of things together, hardship, difficult times, this just really bounds together. And it's just a really... Um, yeah, it's really a great emotional connections that you have with the other people who you work with. And I think that is very hard to replicate. And again, that's just an educated guess, something that is very hard to replicate when you are in a quote unquote safe environment, right? So when you work in a corporate environment, there's not that much at stake. And so, of course, you probably bound that much. But again, um, I'm not an expert in the field. That's just a, a guess that I, I see when I talk to friends who maybe went down a different road. Yeah, I think the risk of bankruptcy is always there in a startup uh, initially in the beginning. What I like yeah. talking about and learning is uh, the defining moments of, of companies. What um, was this defining moment in which you decided, I start a company? What was this uh, single thing? You, you said you worked in a bigger corporation, in a consultancy, and then had this uh, one moment in time where I said, no, now I start something new. What, what was the single defining moment where you said, now it's the right time? I mean, I mean, really looking back, it was really the, yeah, it was really starting uh, my first job um, where I just really realized 
Um, exactly the things that you mentioned, everything was laid out. There was basically a career path that was presented. So if you do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. you will get to um, X position. And I think for some people, that might be a good thing. For other people, you know, also depending on the age, that might not be as um, uh, as attractive. And for me, this literally, I don't know how to, to um, pronounce it differently or to call it differently, literally sounded like hell. I don't know. I, it was like... I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to still explore what is possible. What can you achieve with, you know, building with your quote unquote own hands um, and just thinking about sitting in that chair. And then if you're good in the next five years, you will maybe get an office on your own. This was just not, um, not something that I really could cope with. So it was like, I need to start something now. And of course, if it fails, that's fine. But now is the time to do something. Yeah, I agree. I think there are different personalities uh, in, in uh, humans are simply different. Some, some like to have everything laid out. Some like to go to the office every day at the same time, doing the same task, and it's completely all right. And others, I think, these are more the creatives. Um, it it's poison to them. So I think creatives need to explore, needs to try out new things, need to figure out uh, how to change something. And I'm always impressed when I see success stories like Elon Musk, for example, Jeff Bezos, who make the transition from getting out of a big corporation. Uh, I read, the, I'm reading the book currently or at the moment um, when I'm not on a podcast, uh, The Founders uh, by Jimmy Sonny, and he wrote the about the early days of Elon Musk, for example. And uh, he was at a bank initially and then also started the company. And it's quite interesting uh, to see how people thrive. And But then can change again. I mean, Elon Musk now is the richest person on the planet and runs a big corporation, which is basically back to where he started. And it's really amazing to see how people transition and shift. How is it in your life? You you started the company, uh, you have built a team, and now you're transitioning in growing the company. How is that experience? Um, yeah, um, yeah, very, very interesting. So originally, I always thought that the most difficult part is starting. And I not mean with starting, um, you know, um, going to um going to to the, the through the all legal um, aspects of it but starting really as like acquiring your first customer and i guess that also always depends on the context and the company but for us acquiring the first customers really looking back not not that difficult um what is now really difficult is um building an organization that is growing and of course on one side managing yourself managing how your daily tasks change in my role, but also, of course, helping other people um, help themselves learn how their tasks change. So what I mean with that is basically when we started, um, you know, no management experience at all. And now you really have to on the fly basically learn all this, these things by yourself while, of course, constantly keeping an eye out and um, how needs the company, how does the company need to change What kind of people do we need to hire? Um, but also, of course, giving the opportunity to people who are in-house to grow with the company. And I think just this, literally this organizational building, or I guess you could call it, also call it like organizational behavior, this is really what um, is fascinating me. So how do you align people with what you want to build, communicating in a right way to all these different types of personality traits, um, figuring out how to 
provide the right vision, I guess, so that everyone understands mm -hmm. where you're trying to go. And to be completely honest, I still have the feeling I'm, I'm making so many mistakes in, in that regard still, um, because it is really, it is, it is so complex and things are always changing and you always need to think about how do you cope with all the change while moving forward. Making mistakes means learning. So it's a uh, part of the learning process, <laughs> not yes. learning without mistakes. Or something. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. But teachers wouldn't be happy about that because they always wanted to avoid mistakes. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you're one of the first people who say uh, that I heard saying uh, it was not really difficult getting the first customers. I hear very often from first time entrepreneurs that finding product market fit, uh, is pretty much a challenge. What, what's the magic in your company that you say it's, uh, it, it came naturally? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I mean, I think um, that what you mentioned, like finding product market fit, I wouldn't say that uh, at Soma we have achieved, achieved product market fit yet, but we already have um, some customers or a, a lot of customers. Um, Even better. So, uh, yeah, so, so of course that is also learning um, and we can jump into that as well if you want. But I think just really it, um, I think it really just depends on the founding team, I guess. So uh, when we started, um, my co-founder and myself, we both come from a biomedical engineering background, but as I mentioned, my strengths are not in engineering. Um, I guess my strengths are really in communication or really trying to understand, um, I guess you could call it selling in some way. Um, let me maybe rephrase. I think my strength is really understanding uh, the person who is sitting in front of me or next to me. And so we had this unique combination where when we literally, when we started, of course, we had nothing. We didn't have a product, nothing. We we're just two people. And so we really started, like you see it often in, in movies or in books, because we didn't know better. We just um, looked online, a list of potential customers, and I literally started calling them. And it was li literally like... Um, You know, uh, in the next two months, we have a free slot available. If you want to develop something with us now, you know, we can give you a discount. We have some free resources. So exactly like you see it in the movies. And then the first customers were giving us a chance. I think that is something you have to call it. It probably wasn't a sale. It was rather, uh, you know, they, they sound nice. Um, let's give them a chance. Of course, it was also very small um, projects. So The first sale, this is literally how we started. So it wasn't about building a product first. It was literally about selling something first, getting first customer first, learning from them. Um, and so this was always part of our identity. And I can understand that this is, of course, something not everybody would feel comfortable with. Um, but for us, it was something we always saw as the number one important thing in our journey, since we are in a very technical field, to start working with potential customers from day one. 
How how did you have this idea to start? I mean, it's absolutely right what you did, but uh, I'm I'm curious now to hear where did this idea come from? Uh, I mean, most of the time when I talk with startups, they say we're working on on a product and then we try to sell it and uh, people don't like it, so we tried something else and then we try to sell that and people don't like it again. And you did what many. Um, sales experts, like for example, on YouTube, uh, Alex Homosi is currently quite prominent on YouTube. He explains exactly what you said. Uh, make a list of your potential customers, get your reps in, call them, offer them a product and service. Others like, I mean, it is not so famous. It's more a little bit infamous. Jordan Belfort did exactly that uh, a couple of uh, decades ago. And also Grant Cardone, who's also an expert in uh, sales processes, setting it up, says, okay, you don't need a product or service. You need to just talk to the customers. They tell you what they need, and then you get the solution for them. Either you flip something, like Gary Vaynerchuk, for example, or you build it yourself. But selling, uh, you can do it all. Where did you get this this idea from? Just start selling. Um, I think now if you, that you mentioned those names, it sounds very glorious. But I, I think in reality, it was really just, you know, we started a company without mm. like a business plan or anything. That's not something we've never heard of. And so we were really thinking, okay, so we now have a company. What is the second thing that we need to do? We need to get money in order to pay our rent. And so the next logical thing was, how do we get money? We don't get money by building something now for one year. We get money if a customer gives us money. And so this was just really our very simple brain logic of how do we get our first customers in order to pay for our bills, basically. So there was no method behind it. It was really just... Um, yeah, I guess as, as harsh as it sounds, really money-driven. How do, how can we survive now that we have a, a company in place and we need to pay, um, you know, our advisors and everyone? You can train startups uh, in selling, I guess. So it's a very, <laughs> very valuable lesson. Uh, and then you decided to find a focus for your company. Which focus did you decide on? Yes. So uh, when we started, um, originally, we were always sure that we are um, we want to do something in healthcare. Um, it was our background. Um, it was um, something we were very passionate about. And we also saw also during our studies that healthcare, that there's still so much um, optimizing potential with the help of technology. Um, I think there's not a lot of markets left, like in healthcare, where there's still so much potential in consumer, but also in B2B, um, to optimize. Um, of course, that's part of regulatory processes and many, many more, many, many other factors. But for us, it was clear we want to do something in that field. And for us, it was also clear that we want to um, work with sensors. That is where we came from. And we want to work with, um, in the first step, virtual reality, because it was really something we enjoyed um, gaming-wise. So, you know, that's just how random sometimes these things can come to place. And so we started working with customers, developing um, medical uh, or healthcare VR applications, mainly focused on the field of uh, healthcare training. And then uh, we quickly realized, again, coming back to the point, what do customers really need, that there is a huge need um, of actually understanding the user. Um, in our sense, that was most of the time that was actually students that were using our trainings for you know, training for medical purposes. Um, and uh, there was actually a huge need of understanding the user while he or she is in these digital environments 
mainly because um, you use virtual reality for scaling processes that can be therapies, that can be trainings, whatever you want to, to use it for. VR is always used for scaling and scaling always involves getting rid of the therapist, getting rid of uh, the expert, uh, the mentor who is over watching over your shoulder. And so this technology, virtual reality, was missing exactly this point. How can we provide the insight that an expert um, and therapist can provide in a one-on-one -on -one session? How can we provide that insight back again to virtual reality by using sensor data? And this was basically the transition of where we are now. Let's go. Let's go back to the early days because it's. I think it's pretty more amazing when we look it through that lens that you mentioned. Uh, you started calling healthcare organizations, uh, universities, companies in healthcare. Uh, basically, everybody and their grandmother who had something to do with uh, with healthcare. Yeah. Just uh, tell it this way. And then you had the idea to confront people who are used to being not so much innovative because of these long-lasting regulatory processes. So it's a reason it's for the safety of patients and so that the, the industry is what it is. And then you confronted them with something completely new, virtual reality. Um, I believe not many people in that industry have heard about virtual reality in healthcare before. How did you work around that so that you get a very quick customer in a very complicated system with a completely... Uh, with a technology that is completely outside of the system. What, what was your magic? What was the magic back then? What was the hook point? No, there, there is really no magic. Um, it was um, partially also really luck. So um, one of the things that I learned, of course, is when you enter a new industry, and that can be healthcare or any and this industry really, and you start to sell something or you start to... Um, you want to approach someone and want to work with them in the long term. You always need to understand the incentive of this specific person, right? So you're not talking to the university. You're talking to um, a professor at the university who potentially has completely different um, motivation than the university has. Um, that being said, um, we were actually really lucky and it was really lucky um, to meet um, two or actually three um, doctors who were very interested in the technology and who were also very um, also already working with the technology and who saw great potential in the technology. So for us, it was um, literally by luck, um, of course, by calling a lot of people, getting a lot of no's, but then meeting those people who are interested, who had an open eye, who um, a ear, sorry, who then were really pushing us as a young company, giving us a chance to start working together with them. And slow, so we slowly grew then together with them into the organization. Yeah, open eye is fine with uh, virtual reality. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You said it was lucky, I think, when you call a few hundred people and you think this is this is the matching behind it and you are able to digest the nose, uh, it's quite natural that uh, percentage-wise you have at least one or two people who need what you sell. So very often when people say talk about selling, it sounds like um, taking money but not giving anything valuable in return. Um, this is not what you did. So basically you offered a solution and helping to work on the solution. And uh, these first customers, I believe... Uh, How, are they still your customers? Yeah. So I think um, something that we are very proud of, um, we we work 
um, in B2B, right? And so um, our um, our business model is really focused around um, a handful of customers currently because we are still quite small. Um, and But these customers came back um, every year and the contracts are getting big, bigger every year. Um, so this is really something that we, and I'm not sure if you could call it a method, um, but this is really something that worked for us while we are further developing our product, having this like very loyal foundation of partners. I wouldn't even call them customers anymore. It's really partners and um, who believe in what we want to do and who are continuously supporting us with custom projects um, uh, financially wise. That is really something we are really glad to have. Um, of course, since we're based in Austria and we cannot raise like millions after millions, having customers to talk to, having um, you know um, revenue growth, that is something we're very fortunate to have at the early stage. It's one of the best fundraising methods, uh, sell a service and reinvest the proceeds into research. Um, especially now. Especially now, yeah, especially yeah. in the financial crisis. <laughs> You're blessed that you have customers. It's very often forgotten. The startups very, very quickly sometimes look for investors and forget about the customers. And I think what you did is smart. Let's let's make uh, advertisements uh, and, and add five minutes. Uh, what's your core business? Yeah, so our core business at Soma Reality, as I mentioned, we have some, um, you know, we had quite a journey, um, but um, now we arrived at really our business model where we are also now raising money. Um, so we are now really set on our vision. Um, and what we do is we develop um, digital biomarkers based on eye tracking. Um, and we do that again, mainly currently for VR, because we see that um, more and more of these VR headsets have eye tracking integrated. And this really gives us a great opportunity to really have um, deep, deep insight um, about the user. Um, and of course, you know, I'm not sure who, um, who, who is listening to this and how experienced um, he or she with VR is, but of course, Meta, so the company that is really pushing VR currently, they have a very difficult time currently. Um, and I think that's You know, part of their strategy, but also, of course, part of the, the general market. Um, but um, what we really see is that the use cases, the real use cases, uh, B2B use cases, especially in healthcare, meaning therapy and all these other great applications, they are really on the rise. And we basically want to be the company that provides medical insights during these therapies and other procedures that are done with, that are, can be done with this technology. What are use cases of uh, virtual reality in healthcare? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot. Um, I mean, I can give some some broader ones and then I can maybe give one or two specific ones where we actually Good, are yeah. also involved. Um, so I think the main, really the main um, use case for VR, not just in healthcare, but also in healthcare, of course, is training. Um, so upskilling, um, really training, repetitive um, medical procedures with this digital technology just has a variety of great benefits. There's also a variety of studies out there who support that, you know, you are four times as much as engaged and different factors that really speak for the technology in itself. Um, 
I think what is even more exciting, to be honest, um, are um, therapy and diagnosis applications. So since we have VR as this like very mobile device, audiovisual testing advice that we can really send to people, they can put it on and they have unlimited potential when it comes to audiovisual representation of whatever that might be. Of course, we see a lot of applications now entering the market for pain management, for therapy use cases, um, and much, much more. Um, so to give an example, maybe, with uh, the Vienna-based company Tech2People, um, they are providing therapy solutions um, by training people who cannot walk anymore with exoskeletons, which is really cool to see. Um, and together with them, we uh, developed a solution so that the exoskeleton movement is translated in the virtual environment. And so people are not walking in a laboratory anymore. They're walking in a gamified um, virtual um, yeah, testing environment where they can really, you know, interactively interact with the environment. And now, of course, with our technology, we are able to use this device that they're now this head mounted display and uh, with eye tracking that they now wear on their head during the therapy for additional insights during the training process or during the therapy process, which of course is very exciting for a therapist, but also for uh, the person who is undergoing therapy, the patient. Let me let me repeat that if I got it right. So there, in Vienna is a company, it's called tech to people They are producing exoskeletons for people who have lost the ability to walk to whatever reason, uh, accident or uh, some, some neuro diseases. And your solution helps people then, uh, in the old days, before your solution, people need to drive to the laboratory, uh, get into the exoskeleton and learn to use it, basically. It's learn to, learn to walk with the exoskeleton, uh, which I think is probably a procedure of a couple of weeks or months until they're able to just navigate it naturally. And your solution enables the patients to do that pretty much at home. So basically, going um, on no. the VR. No, no, they still they still require the the whole exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. um, the the what we just basically provide is um, until now they were just going up and down like a hallway, um, and the therapist was guiding them. And with our solution now, we have the capability of putting on additionally to being in this exoskeleton and putting on the virtual reality headset to really have, have them not move up and down a hallway, but rather really have like a gamified incentives to um, you know move towards this virtual landscape. That of course is just one thing that is nice. It's a nice yeah. addition. But what is actually really interesting is now that we have the headset on the patient, we can use all the sensors that are integrated like eye tracking data to really enable a deeper insight about the cognitive state of the user, of the patient in this case, while he or she is um, undergoing therapy, which of course then can be used uh, in a later stage uh, for additional insights uh, for the therapy to enhance it. So they're basically walking at the same place in a virtual environment. Yes, so yes. Instead of, instead of walking... Uh, down a hallway. Down yeah. a hallway, they're walking in a virtual way. You can basically uh, mm -hmm. simulate anything uh, in this yes. virtual This is pretty much... And they learn to walk again, so they can walk again after that. Isn't that great? Yes. Yes, yes. So, and exactly these are the, again, you know, we're just a technology provider. Uh, we are not tech to people is doing really the heavy lifting about the therapy and everything. 
and they're really doing great work. So um, yeah, if if you hear this, you should check them out. Um, but of course, this is really why we are in that space. Um, this is really why we we are doing what we're doing to really work with patients and use cases in that field. I think there are not many initiatives. I think uh, Red Bull Wings for Life Innovation uh, uh, Foundation, not Innovation Foundation, is doing something in that area. It's good to hear that also other companies are working in that area. I was yeah. not aware of that. What are what are more other use cases? Yeah, so another one that is really cool is um, in the field of um, um, therapy, but like more in the field of mental health. Um, so there are companies out there who um, basically enable, um, you know, mental enhanced mental health therapy on the individual basis, meaning the patient is going home um, after, for example, um, this uh, treatment, this discussion with a trained medical professional, and then they put on the headset and they have a variety of audiovisual, um, you know, mental health applications that can be like guided breathing, that can also be, you know, nice environments where they have to do certain very simple tasks to really um, be mindful about, you know, what they have. Um, and again, these applications until now were not able to understand the user in real time, which of course, if you think about it, if you have a, um, something that is going um, in the direction of therapy for mental health, standardizing something like this is really difficult. I would even argue it's probably the wrong approach, right? So it's such a complex topic in order to really provide help. You really need to understand you know, what are the needs of the patients? What does she or she really need in order to feel better? And so with our technology, with the integration of sensors, we're really able to, um, you know, provide deep insight about the cognitive state of the user. Of course, this data then can be used to enhance the therapy session or even automatically adapt the virtual environments to the needs of the patient. Let's dig a little bit deeper into what that means, understanding the user better, better, and how um, we can make use of that in therapy and diagnostics. Um, the solutions before we met that I saw on the market were when it came to understanding the user better, but pretty much uh, you can move a cursor in a game from left to right, and that's pretty much it. Um, what does it mean, understanding the user better? Um, yeah, so there, of course, that's a great question. There's a variety of um, uh, different approaches of understanding the user also depending on the outcome that you want. Uh, it's quite funny always when I tell people what we do, the first thing they ask is, okay, so you're in marketing. That's always the first, <laughs> because of course, that is where... You know, if you're not in that field, you always feel, okay, understanding people, it's always about understanding why or why not they're buying a product. Um, fair enough. Um, but you um, said, sorry to interrupt you, but this was what I think it's funny because uh, with virtual reality, you can send the user through a grocery store and then make the companies aware where they are looking positioned there. <laughs> this uh, is not what you're doing. <laughs> no, this is not what we're doing, but this is what we could do. So, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, yeah, so. So this is exactly what we could do with our technology. Um, but uh, yeah, to make it concrete, um, so we are um, utilizing eye tracking. We're utilizing pupil dilation, small eye movements to really gain insight about the cognitive state of the user. 
our first um, product, our first algorithm is a cognitive load, which basically describes uh, the capacity of your working memory. And while you're performing a task, we always um, need our working memory active. And it's, you know, the capacity is like a range, depending how difficult the task is, depending how many tasks you do at the same time. And this capacity, of course, is filled or is, um, you know, um, quite easy to do. And so with that information, what we can do is a variety of things. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll give the two most exciting ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is uh, measuring attention. So to, to come back to the marketing approach, uh, this would be exactly this. We're able to not only measure gaze tracking, so where is the person looking, but we're rather, we're able to combine it with when the person is looking at a certain spot in, for example, the digital environment, we're also able to exactly tell was he or she actually processing information while he or she was looking at the spot or was it, you know, just staring point blank at that specific spot, which of course has a variety of like medical insights that you can derive from that and much, much more. Um, The other part that is very exciting is cognitive load is also very much linked to learning state. So when we, uh, when I mentioned at the beginning, the the virtual reality medical trainings and integrating cognitive load measurements in these virtual reality trainings really enables us to better understand are there certain steps in the training process that really lead to cognitive overload, meaning that this individual really struggles with the current state of the training process, which of course is very valuable to then deep dive with, for example, an expert to really understand what the struggles are. What are the commercial what are the commercial applications? So um, commercial applications. Um, Yeah, a variety of um, commercial applications. I think um, one of the yeah most exciting ones, I can give you two examples. And um, the first one is um, also in the field of um, you know medicine, where we work with the company Intuitive. Um, they have their own research um, grant um, structure that we um, recently won. Where we now meet, thank you very much. Um, where we now are integrating our cognitive load algorithm to really measure gaze and cognitive load of the console surgeon. So I don't know if you've ever seen a Da Vinci robot system really in place, um, but there's always this one surgeon who is um, you know, controlling the robot. And most of the time he's sitting in one corner of the room um, and um, they basically communicate, the, the surgeon communicates with the rest of the team via voice or um, really with, you know, um, communicating, there's a screen uh, for the OR team that basically visualizes what the robot is seeing inside the patient. And so with our technology, we're now measuring gaze and um, cognitive load in order to really find out are these visualizations that we can provide additionally to the communication layer that they're currently using, so meaning voice, can we actually enhance the team dynamic leading to less errors? So this is one of the examples. Um, Another example is with the company um, Lufthansa, um, where we actually use cognitive load to gain insights um, about the pilot during the training. Um, so these pilots are using virtual reality, which is, I believe, very, very interesting since it's not my field. Um, they are using virtual reality 
for training for the simulator. Uh, the simulator is actually very, very expensive, like 70 million. Um, very one hour in the simulator is, you know, very expensive as well. And so they're using VR in order to be ready once they enter the simulator. And we use virtual reality together with them and cognitive load measurements to really prepare them and measure where are certain um, steps in the procedure that we really need to take a closer look at before they enter the simulator. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. How, how, can, can you explain it a little bit more in detail, um, the case with Lufthansa? What does it mean that you evaluate which steps in the procedure are necessary before they enter the simulator? So um, these simulators, so they're the, the, really the big simulators, uh, 70 million upwards, so very expensive, they run 23-7. Uh, so we always like to say 23 hours is for training, the last hour is for cleaning. So they, they're like fully booked. Um, and um, so these technologies uh, that we are now, um, you know, um, utilizing together with them, uh, virtual reality really is used in order to, um, train them before so make them comfortable with the whole uh, virtual with the whole simulator environment and we're using virtual reality so that they're ready once they enter the simulator that they already have figured everything out and they can use the time in the simulator as effective as possible um, now with our technology so eye tracking and cognitive load measurements we can now really say okay while the person uh, while the pilot is training in VR preparing himself, um, for the real simulator, we really can see, is there a step during the process where we can really see uh, his or her cognitive load is really, you know, spiking because there is mental overload because he or she is really overwhelmed with some stage of the progress. And so with that insight, we then, of mm -hmm. course, can use that insight to really prepare him or her to, you know, that specific um, stage of the process um, really train that specific part before they enter the simulator. So to rephrase it into my world, um, so basically the simulators are very expensive. And when you book one hour, uh, which I believe the pilots probably need um, for uh, keeping their license. So they probably need some trainings there. Uh, it's not that you can say, okay, come half an hour later because I had I was uh, stuck in a traffic jam uh, and start preparing then half an hour later and they have the simulator uh as long as they want it. So it's really on the point. You need to be there. You need to be on the point. You need to be ready. You need to be um, in the procedure and uh, running through your training. And then you get probably points or something and you can keep your license and uh, keep on flying with commercial uh, airlines. This is one value proposition that you help them. So basically it's like a warm up with, with your virtual reality classes. And the second thing that you can provide uh, showing the pilot the weak points. 
So they say, okay, at this point, you were not really paying attention. Is that the right understanding? Yes. So, of course, that is really the first step. So the end uh, solution that we're now researching together with them is actually an attention recommender system. And of course, I don't want to go in too much details because it will get probably too complicated. But basically, um, you know, since uh, aviation has like these highly standardized processes, Mm. which of course is not yet happening in medicine, but that's another topic. Um, So we, uh, and we can also jump into that as well, if you want. Mm, Sure. um, but uh, so we have like this very standardized process during the simulation. And so um, if we now measure, you know, which of the certain parameters during the virtual reality training, so before the simulator are overstimulating or overloading, we then, of course, can have a very detailed discussion why this is overloading. How do we actually make it, um, you know, ma- adapt the training to your needs so that you are prepared for when you actually enter the simulator? And now in the next stage, these systems would actually be so smart that they understand where you're currently struggling and would be able to provide you with visual cues about the next step that he or she needs to take in the virtual environment. So this is the direction that you know these technologies go. So it's basically um, assisting them in training. Isn't that useful for other industries? I mean, you said healthcare before, and I'm not an expert in aviation, so it's... Uh, um, uh, you said that they are highly standardized and, uh, I translated it into my word, like other industries are not highly standardized. Um, not being an expert in aviation, I would say healthcare also, the closer it is to the patient. You mentioned intuitive surgical, for example, I always thought that surgeries are also highly standardized processes, uh, how people walk in. Uh, what they need to do before they can uh, uh, do the procedure on the patient, that the procedure on the patient is highly standardized. Of course, always something can happen in the procedure. No patient is the same, but I always thought also search, surgeons uh, have pro- standardized procedures. Is that the wrong understanding that I got? No, no, that is definitely not the wrong understanding, but I think you mentioned the, the key point, every patient is different, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is really the key part. Um the cockpit of a certain airplane will always be the same. The buttons are always on the exact same position. Of course, that is something we don't have in healthcare. So the level of standardization is just really, there's still a huge gap. And can you use your training environment also for that industry, for healthcare? So that uh, basically you also tell people when they run through the procedure um, where they have their weak spots. Yeah, definitely. So that is something we also do. Um, So, for example, together with the Medical University of Vienna, um, we are doing exactly what we are doing with Lufthansa, but just in a medical setting. So exactly, exactly the same value proposition. I mean, just just for brainstorming, let's get a little bit creative. We were talking about creativity in the the beginning. Uh, Sports, for example, I very often saw... um, people skiing downhill, downhill races, that they just stood there uh, running in their mind through the race. Is that not something that you can automate with virtual reality or enhance with virtual reality classes and giving them more information about their behavior during the downhill race, the simulated downhill race? Um I'm not a downhill expert, but um, I know uh, it definitely. So, and I can give you an example that we also think is very promising, which is actually gaze training. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what I mean is, since you are basically in VR involved in this digital cutoff environment, um, thinking about downhill, and again, I've never done downhill before, um, but um, you could have, uh, for example, let's keep it simple, a video capture of the path downwards, and you could actually use training methods to train when should the person, the downhill biker, I guess, uh, when should he or she actually look at that specific part? So, um, you know, what you mentioned, what these people are currently doing all in their heads with just standing and saying, okay, left, right, left, right. You could actually have that as like a mobile training laboratory where you put it on, you visually really go down the hill and then there's visual cues. Now look here, now look here, because you, of course, now the, the turn is coming in five meters. That's everything that you could, that you could measure. Yes. And of course, then train. I mean, I also think about when I was a student in the 90s, I worked for the Formula One in, in the paddock area. And you said cockpit in, in airplanes, I think also Formula One race car is pretty much standardized. And uh, for the driver, of course, uh, so and everything is on the same place. Could you also uh, help them with their training for a race so that they also get these cues where you said, okay, now look left, now look right. At uh, this point at the race, at this speed, you must do this and that. Is that also possible? Um, yeah. So of course, I'm, I'm uh, without being an, an expert in the industry, I, I want to say yes. Um, but of course, I don't know the, the ins and outs of, uh, you know, what the requirements for them are. Um, just with my basic knowledge, I want to say yes. <laughs> Okay, so basically it's a perfect enhancement to training. What other use cases do we have when we go back to to healthcare? Yeah, so again, I think for us, uh, the most um, um, promising ones are um, therapy and diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. something that we're just really starting to explore is, um, of course, cognitive load is just the first indication that we are using for cognitive insights. But just the eyes, there's so much information that you can derive from the eyes. And so we're really just starting moving down the path of what additional information, for example, about the neurological insights, about the neurological status, what can we actually derive uh, from looking at the eyes, from just looking at the eyes, which, of course, then opens um, yeah, a huge new opportunities for uh, digital therapies, digital therapeutics, and yeah, much, much more. Um, which ones are you exploring currently? What do you see promising use cases? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, something that we are currently really excited is um, looking um, more in the field of um, neurological insights. Um, that being said, why neurology or why neurological insights? Um, there's a variety of things that we find very exciting. Um, the first one is, of course, uh, in general, the adoption of variables. Um, if we take a look at, um, you know, how healthcare in general is changing, um, we see, I'm, I'm not sure if you have an Apple Watch. Um, I personally don't have one, um, but it's here. So. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot of people start Everybody using variables. Everyone needs an Apple Watch. <laughs> Everyone. I mean, per, I pers- again, I personally don't have one yet, but, you know, just the adoption of these variables is just really great to see, to mm-hmm. be honest. I think that's definitely the future in healthcare. Um, and if we think about these 
head-mounted displays basically also as a variable, you know, in the, in the healthcare mindset as a variable that we're using in order to have certain audiovisual cues where we can have testing in this audiovisual environment, as well as, of course, having sensors like eye tracking integrated in there. We believe that uh, this will really have like a huge, huge impact on continuous monitoring. So what does that mean? Um, with uh, imagine, let me do this uh, a different route. Imagine like you have your Apple Watch right now and you uh, go along with your day. And then after uh, a long day, you potentially look back and really see, okay, there was this one stress spike. I think the, the Apple Watch can already measure stress, um, mm -hmm. right? And there was this huge stress spike and you really start optimizing if that is something you want to do. You can really start optimizing your day-to-day um, -day activities about, for example, reducing stress. Um, now, imagine a world where, you know, head-mounted display, let's say Apple is bringing out like glasses, they look like this. Um, and um, we are now able to measure your eyes through the whole day. Mm -hmm. And now imagine a world where you not only have an Apple Watch that says your pulse, your heart rate variability went up, your stress went up, but we're also able to say your cognitive load, just to give an example, your attention during the day, we saw like this huge spike there and you can actually start optimizing your day also around these parameters. So um, continuously monitoring cognitive and neurological functions um, is something I personally believe will be uh, just the logical next step in variable technology. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders Drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. And what are what are use cases for, for that? I mean, it's basically you say that one day, um, but is now this virtual reality, this, uh, this, this big virtual reality classes, which are like headsets here, and then you have uh, this. Uh, it's not for everyday use. So one day this will be built into classes like you were, and you can measure uh, how the eyes move during the day. What 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 can you read out of this eye movement when you measure it? Yes. Um, yeah, so so basically, I think that is really the direction that things are going. I'm, I mean, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, VR at the current stage, of course, it is still very, very niche. It's the same with AR. But I'm just convinced that, uh, you know, in the long term, we will definitely see some kind of adoption of like head mounted display. I think just it's personally, it's of course, I'm also primed, but it, this is just the next logical step in, in that development. Um, so, yes, what you can derive through the eyes, it is actually amazing what is already out there, what you can do with it. Um, just talking about neurological insights. 
There are companies out there who are already able to derive, um, you know, early stages of dementia. So really detecting early stages of dementia, like up to five years before you actually develop first symptoms. Um, there are companies out there, of course, that are really focused on ADHD. Um, so really a lot, a lot of great insights you can derive from uh, just really looking at the eyes. And now imagine where a world where we have continuous monitoring of these functions, especially in neurological disorders where early prediction or early detection um, is really something that is crucial for um, you know, the continuous um, 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 optimization of these, these diseases. I mean, that would be really a game changer. Now I can, I did some research, if uh, you don't mind, I can show you some what uh, the audience when I find the right share screen. So here we go. Um, I mean, it's uh, Mayo Clinic, for example. It's one of the most prominent uh, clinics when it comes to healthcare. They are conducting studies uh, in exactly what you say for neurological diseases. So it's uh, something that is really ongoing. Um, also, when I go through, when I just do a normal search, there are a lot of uh, publications around what you just said. Treatment of psychological disorders um, with virtual reality, and also UCL in London uh, did some projects a couple of years ago. Some spin-outs from the UCL. They're also doing research in neuroscience uh, and virtual reality, which I think is uh, quite interesting. So there's a lot of uh, science going on. Yeah, no, definitely. And actually, because you mentioned Mayo Clinic. Um, we are actually in the process, so uh, I don't know the English term cloth of words. Uh, we are actually <laughs> in the process of, um, um, you know, working together with them uh, in exactly this field. Uh, so, you know, really very exciting stuff, what they're doing and what you showed. Um, yeah, there's, there's again, I'm repeating myself, but there's there's so much potential in the field. When when I was, when I walked through your pitch deck, I saw a term um, that was, Aware virtual reality systems as the future of uh, where the world will, will go. Can you give a little bit more insight into this term? Yeah, I mean, really aware is, um, you know, coining the term that I, um, I explained with. Um, there are a lot of companies out there who um, basically believe that, and I mean, we're one of them, that technology will always or should always be used to serve a very specific use case. Um, that being said, a future where the technology, no matter what technology we're talking about, is able to really understand what me as an individual, as a technology user, is um, requiring of the technology in that specific moment, um, of course, this would be an ideal. I don't want to... And I can give some examples. Um, if my computer is able to know exactly, um, you know, what I need when I'm overstimulated, when I need a break, um, this would really enable us to coexist with technology in a way how we haven't seen it yet. And so for us, um, of course, since we are very much focused on head-mounted displays, this is what we try to achieve for this technology. So, um, when we talked about, imagine you live in a world where we walk around with Apple glasses that look like this. Um, of course, there's a lot of benefits to this, but 
you know, to be completely honest, this also can go very fast in a very wrong direction. Just imagine walking around and there's advertising displayed um, all over your uh, your your vision. Um, so if we had, don't have technology that really enables the systems to really be aware of, you know, your cognitive overload of attention patterns, when you need a break, uh, when are you looking at what, um, you know, these technologies really can be actually, um, how should I pronounce this, could actually, you know, be harmful in a way since um, they would just um, be driven by the idea of attention is, of course, the the current um, yeah, currency for a lot of our companies out there that are in the field of advertising. And so really having something in front of our eyes without being able to, you know, um, uh, having this system aware in a way where they know what is really now important for me as a person that could actually be, could turn very dark very soon. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think this uh, is a nice discussion about the ethics of uh, technology. And you can look at it from this or that perspective. I love technology. So the first thing that I did uh, when I was aware of the internet in the early 90s was getting an email address and using it. And when I think back to advertisements, for example, you mentioned that it can be, uh, become very dark. I remember the 80s or 70s with an overflowing, uh, <laughs> with an abundance of uh, leaflets in front of the door of the house or in the letterbox. And when I realized that the internet has this uh, built-in cookies that can track what I do on the internet and can uh, analyze what, which websites I look at and uh, which products I buy. I mean, of course, you can come from the conspiracy theories side and say it's a manipulation of the customer. But what I realized is that I can forget about all the leaflets. I don't need them. So I put a, a sticker on the letterbox and uh, at the house door that I don't get that because uh, Google, uh, this was a few years later, I think uh, 2008, 9, 10, when they started with that, uh, tells me when something that is in my area of interest is able to purchase for computer games, for example, Call of Duty, when the next uh, next uh, installment of a series comes out. I think it's a great thing. I mean, having technology telling me when I get something that I need or when it's available or uh, Alexa, for example, currently tells me when one of my favorite uh, writers publishes a new book. Whenever Stephen King publishes something, Alexa tells me, Christian, there's a new book on that. I don't see it as a bad thing. Do you see it as a, as a dark side? You could, you could, I mean, you know, I think that's, that's really like, um, depending on the personality of the end user, but you could, um, to coming back to aware systems, mm -hmm. you could really argue in your case, an Alexa is already the first step of, uh, I mean, we're already living in a world where a lot of these technologies are a reality. Those are aware systems, right? So they are aware of, okay. 
Yes, so they are aware of your personal needs. And of course, that is a range that can be from um, having real time insights about, you know, your cognitive states and then deriving information out of this. This would be more on the side where we are currently focused on, you know, healthcare. Um, but of course, at the same time, aware systems are also systems like an Alexa that was trained maybe by you or, um, you know, by someone prior to really understand this is an offer that you, Christian, really, really like. And so once there's a new book, I'm telling you, um, because I know that you like this, now you can buy this now. So this aware system, of course, is like a very broad range. Um, and my argument was really just, um, of course, depending on how far we are willing to go, um, aware systems can also, of course, become, always depending on the end user and what the end user wants, um, can also reach, uh, I guess, like a very creepy level of where I'm not really sure if everyone would be happy with that. Yeah, this, we could go down this road, but let's stay with uh, the healthcare. Otherwise, we end up discussing conspiracy theories. Yes. Uh, let's, we can do that in a separate podcast. Um, this week, I was at an event in which we were talking also about uh, similar technologies. And uh, at one point, uh, one of the speakers said that in future diagnostics will, I think it's built, built on, on, on your part is aware of virtual reality systems and how B2B customers can use that. And his point was that he believes it's solvable that we diagnose diseases, uh, purely from the behavior of the user. So these aware systems, uh, read out what the user is doing during the day. And at the end of the day, they can diagnose diseases. So I thought, okay, well, well, well maybe ob obesity or something. I mean, it's quite obvious. Or, uh, when someone like, for example, me, I eat too many sweets, uh, the system can tell me, okay, you will get uh, diabetes at one point in your life. And I thought it was funny. And so I asked the question and say, okay, so basically, is it possible in future to diagnose cancer with just my behavior in Call of Duty? And I found the answer astonishing because I expected laughing and I expected, no, it's not possible. And he looked at me very seriously and said, yes, that's the way we were, everything is going right now. Do you believe that? Is that really possible? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um Because you mentioned the, the example of a video game. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure that we will um, reach probably faster than we think a state where, you know, diagnostics will be technology based diagnostics mm -hmm. will be fastly available. And um, because really coming from a huge need. Right. So I think we as people are always very reactive um, but you know really currently there's so much challenges in the world so really i think the development of this like continuously continuous monitoring systems and early detection of diseases based on technology based on variables this is definitely the direction that we're going probably fast uh, earlier than later um, you know depending on how abstract we can go with those things. So like you mentioned, playing a video game and then the video game tells me if I will have cancer in the next five years. Um, that is something, I mean, you talk to an expert, so of course I don't want to um, uh, say something against his work. He will know what uh, he was talking about. Um, I'm just um, 
not convinced that this is something that we will see in the near future. I personally see sensors, so basically variables like the Apple Watch, um, that really are linked to certain vital parameters or, again, looking at the eyes. This is something where we probably see the first adoption. Of mm -hmm. course, limits are endless. Um, uh, so uh, the, the chances that we some, someday arrive at something like this, I guess, is very likely. But, of course, um, not in the near future. But, again, that's just my personal opinion. I'm, I'm 48 years old, so it's a, a lot of uh, things when I was a boy that we have now, but just uh, not for the near future. Now we are in the near future and we have it smartphones, for example. I mean, in the, in the 80s, we had uh, no smartphones, we had no mobile phones. And now everybody has a computer in their pocket with a camera, with a microphone. And it's, it's unbelievable already, but let's, let's bridge back to your technology. I think when we dissect it and say, okay, we are in the near future and then we have the far future. So let's talk about the far future. I think if that really is the direction that the industry is going or that companies start now, like yours, uh, doing research and development, especially the development part, how to translate research into solutions. Why not? I think it, it can be possible. I mean, we are producing so much data these days. Uh, I didn't have that in the 80s when I was playing computer games. The data is just was, was in the air and nobody used it. But now it's documented in cloud systems and yeah. I have cameras that can track me. You have virtual reality. It opens up a wide range of diagnostic possibilities. Yeah, no, definitely. And also to, to make that statement here, I... Historically, I have been wrong uh, a lot of times. So I think I'm personally, from my, my personality type, I think I'm always a little bit more conservative when I think about what is possible in the future, which of course is weird because in my position, I normally should be the person who says like everything is possible, technology, um, there's no limit to this. Um, so yeah, please, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I would love to live in a world like this, you know, so just from that perspective, um, let's, let's build a world like this. Definitely. Um, again, I'm just from coming from, from my background. Um, I, um, yeah, I'm always already when I hear something like this, I always start thinking about, okay, to make this concrete, how would something like this look like? And I don't, if I don't get like a, at least rough plan in my head of I, how I would do something like this. For me, it's just too far-fetched. Again, this is just a personality type, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, no, it sounds very exciting. I think uh, just just a bit of what you said. Um, I think it's uh, cultural, also cultural influence from, from culture, Europe and the United States. Um, in, in Jimmy Sonny's book, The Founders, I read the term premature truth. Um, it means that Someday in the future, it will be true, but now it's not true. So the interesting thing is whenever I look at pitch decks from the United States, they have these bold vision statements and start off uh, with 20 years in the future, how it will look like and what they're building towards to. Whenever I talk to Europeans, I have the feeling maybe it just my sample is very small. So I always have the feeling they're more in the near future. What is really realistic? Uh, uh, yeah, Definitely. That is, that is, yeah, culture is definitely plays a, plays a big part in this. But I guess, of course, also culture is formed by, um, you know, external factors also. So just because you mentioned pitch deck and I'm currently also in the process of fundraising, experiencing all this. And 
I've talked to some American investors, some European investors, and really the difference, European investors, the first thing that everyone asks is like, how much revenue do you have? Mm. And of course, then going with a pitch deck out there of like, we will detect cancer by playing Call of Duty um, and then getting the question, okay, but how much money do you already now make with it? Of course, then that is a different bridge that you have to get. Yeah, sometimes you have investors or talking to investors who are more in the scale-up business. So they like to invest in companies who have revenues. Sometimes you talk to investors that more into uh, early-stage investments. So they don't care about revenues. They just want to help the company moving forward. So there are different areas as well. Theranos, for example, one of the big failures, they went a little bit too far, too far with the premature truths. But let's stay, let's stay with, uh, with your truth and what you are building right now. Um, so in this area of aware virtual reality systems, what are the use cases that you want to provide for the near future? So um, again, as I mentioned, um, we we really see our um, our company as the company that will provide all the um, cognitive and neurological insights um, that will be derived um, based on this head-mounted display once we wear them on a daily daily basis. Um, so for us. Um, we really try to um, learn from players who have done that successfully. Um, and so I'm sorry that I always bring up the Apple Watch, but I think it's such a great uh, example because it really achieved, um, and that is, of course, part the brand Apple, but the achieved really uh, adoption. And to coming back to my point from beforehand, when the Apple Watch came out, I was like, nobody will ever wear this. Like, that, that that's silly. And now everyone is wearing it. So I have been wrong a couple of times um, but what they are doing right in the first step is really just measuring your heart rate variability they're now doing first interpretation of the data with stress but it is something that is um, interesting for uh, a lot of people and for a lot of use cases what does that mean um, apple didn't start by telling you you will have a stroke in five years they started by building this foundation first gathering data first, and then, of course, making very subtle first interpretation of the data that they collected, like, for example, stress. And so for us as a company, we really believe that the huge potential in the first step lies exactly in this step. So taking eye tracking data and really measuring basic neurological and cognitive insights that can be interesting for, for example, as I mentioned, a Lufthansa, while at the same time being interesting to enhance um, training processes or therapy processes. So really starting with the foundation of just having continuous insights about, you know, basically your brain functions, if you want to call it that way, to really then build on top of that collected data to really go down the path of specific diseases. That's a great thing. The thing is, I think the, the, the challenge is when people are used to a technology, it's very easy that they understand what needs a technology what needs to have that the technology can fulfill. Mm -hmm. With VR, I think it's a little bit more challenging because uh, who, uh, how many people have a VR headset at home already? I think it's it's very niche. What when when you could pitch now to your ideal customer, uh, how could you 
translates that into their world. So what, what is the hook point that you can deliver? Why, why should someone who never used a virtual reality headset, when they listen to this episode, pick up the phone and call you? Um, yeah, so of course it depends on the, the field you're in. Um, but um, let's say you are in the field that we have talked now uh, for the last half an hour. It's really diagnostics, healthcare, treatment, therapy. Um, I think one of the most exciting things about VR is that for the first time, we are really able to send something, this VR headset, to people's homes and have like unlimited um, potential for um one, audiovisual representation, as well as movement in three-dimensional space. That sounds very complicated. What I mean is you are now able to just put on this headset and be you know, completely immersed in this digital environment that basically provides a step-by-step -step guide, if you think about like physical therapy, to move completely automated and guided in that virtual space. I think that is the main takeaway why VR in that field is exciting. If we now add that virtual reality is basically a completely digital environment um, with, of course, what we do, sensors integrated that provide additional insight about the user, you're basically now entering a step where therapy in, let's stick with therapy, with these technologies are now being able to actually start to be better in the real therapy, because we can now start actually measuring more than a professional would be able to measure while he is just performing therapy with you. So since we're in this completely digital environment and every single movement, every single um, you know, gaze, everything is measurable. Now imagine you have that amount of data as a therapist every time your um, patient comes back to your office after two weeks and says, here is all my healthcare data, all my training data that I did completely on my own. You can see exactly what I did, how I did it, how I felt. Now imagine how that would enhance therapy and diagnosis. And I think this is really the main takeaway that you can get um, why this technology is so exciting to us and why we believe that there is a huge future in it. It's like having for, for home training, having someone, having an, a, a trainer or a coach uh, at home who observes the patients and uh, feeds back the data then to the physician. Yes, okay. yes. But of course, in like a really, we're talking like high quality, right? Not just a phone camera that is filming you, but really every single movement is tracked in that virtual space, which of course, yeah, I don't have to tell you how valuable that is. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like stroke. For example, I mean, what men would uh, like to talk about weaknesses, of course. I mean, I always, when, I, when a physician asks me, uh, do you feel sick? I always say no. <laughs> so having such uh, data enhancement, I think, is very helpful for physicians to get uh, additional data to the observation of the patient. You mentioned pain, so that you also do measurements in pain. I always thought pain is subjective. How can your solution help uh, making pain objective? Yeah. Um, that's that's a great point. So, I mean, you are completely right. I think that is important to start with. Um, pain is subjective. Um, that being said, um, we, and that is something we currently research together with the Medical University of Vienna, where based on our cognitive load algorithm, as I mentioned, we can derive attention. And um, there's a lot of research out there that supports the hypothesis that attention or certain attention patterns 
are actually correlated with a felt pain level. So what does that mean? Our hypothesis is that if we just go back to the use case with, for example, tech to people, where imagine you are in this exoskeleton, you are proceeding with your therapy, and now we have the ability to measure based on pupil dilation, based on small changes in eye movement, we can measure your attention. And based on this, we can derive insights of how potential pain levels or pain thresholds are changing. Imagine how valuable that would be for a therapist, because of course, while you are moving in that exoskeleton, you're not constantly saying, now I feel a two of a pain, now I feel a eight of a pain. That's not how therapy works. So just having indications of, if that is possible, of how you know attention changed during these therapy session and therefore correlating to certain pain levels, that would be immensely valuable for therapists, of course, then later on enhance or change how the therapy approach uh, can look like. Yeah, I think also developing new therapies, new drugs, drug development were uh, against pain. Um, the research I was part of uh, always had a problem in measuring pain because it's so subjective. It is. Have, it is. The, the only thing you have is a scale from one to 10. Yes. And then it depends on the user, also from martial arts. I mean, one person feels pain very quickly. The other person has a higher threshold. And the subjective um, experience of pain with more training in certain exercises when the body gets used to just goes down. But uh, it also risks uh, something to break much quicker because the, the, the signal is not there. And uh, when the joints reach the breaking point, it just <laughs> you should just realize it at the end when the process is, has gone too far. Uh, I think it's a great invention. I have three questions left. For you. So let's start with the first one. Did I miss anything in this conversation? Is there any topic that you would like to talk about that I didn't ask questions about? Mm. No, no, I think, um, you know, coming into this for me, it was really just a, a discussion about general, about, you know, I think it was really nice just to give like a general introduction about the struggles of entrepreneurship. I think that was a very good introduction. Um, and then, of course, coming a little bit to also challenge, you know, how potentially I or you see a potential future for head-mounted displays, for variables, how that really relates to healthcare and especially seeing virtual reality, which is really, I think, the main point of, of today's um, um, interview meeting that um, these variables can actually be seen as, you know, really a healthcare device, which I think a lot of people don't yet see. A lot of that see, a lot of people still see VR and these variables as gaming uh, devices, which of course is fair enough. Um, but I think just to get that concept was really something that was important to me. And I hope that that was something that I could explain a little bit better. No, absolutely, absolutely. I'm very happy that you are here today. Still, when you talk about the future and you mentioned it as, uh, I think it should be visible to produce something like we see in Star Trek, this uh, digital doctor, <laughs> when we use all devices that uh, get data, that uh, read out data from my behavior and then analyze it in the background. And I, I want such devices because they can tell me when something goes off track in yeah. my life before it has a serious impact. 
So I believe with what you develop, uh, when you keep developing with your team, uh, it helps coming closer to that point where then Alexa, for example, pops up in a few years and say, Christian, <laughs> you should go to the physician. Here's the data. Uh, here is the readout. He already has it yeah. and can then suggest therapies to do something against it or even better, uh, telling me how I should change my lifestyle before I need a therapy. Yes. Yes. And again, I think what is important just by having these variables, of course, then Alexa is like the, the last step, but by having these variables and having just this continuous collection of data about your health record, now your physician or your doctor can now make much better or, you know, potentially even technology uh, can be used to then make really detailed predictions. And I think predictions is really the key part here mm -hmm. about, you know, how your health might turn out, which of course really would shift just the whole healthcare um, um, system, how we currently know it, right? Really um, shifting it to a predictive state where we now really will be able to say, okay, in the next five years, if you do not change now and change X, Y, and Z, the outcome will be Y. And so I think this would really be like a, yeah, a very big shift in how we currently proceed uh, healthcare and medicine in general. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, predictive medicine. So when you keep your lifestyle, you have an 80% chance to develop that cancer. And then it's the choice of the user. And then it's the choice of the user. Yeah, you can still, you know, keep that lifestyle if it makes you happy, but you know the potential consequences. And the physician already can start preparing for the therapy. That for the therapy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, of course, someone here. Yeah. Yes, but it what what it really needs is teams like yours. So that uh, teams like yours get money, get uh, through service fees, through investments to keep translating scientific results into products. I think this is the position of your company, so that you are the translator into what can we do with that. And how can we make use that we come closer to that uh, vision? So this is uh, the second question. Um, you said you're raising funds. How much do you raise? What type of investors are you looking for? And what's your value proposition for investors? Yeah, so we are um, currently raising our seed financing round um, of um, 1.5 million. Um, and we are raising that at a 10 million valuation. Um, and we um, are using that funds in order to really bring our first uh, continuous um, neurological um, monitoring um, to the market. To the market, was the, what does that mean? Um, it means we're currently really focused on um, B2B applications, um, as I mentioned, and I named a few, because we believe that there's already a lot of value that we can provide now, generate revenue now, um, and um, basically really closely monitor the market and really see once these devices, once this head-mounted display really, I guess, reach a critical mass, we already want to be in place with existing, um, you know, digital biomarkers, existing infrastructure to then really move in that space to provide that insight potentially for, you know, the next uh, Apple headsets that everyone will wear. That's a great thing. So you have your R&D team and uh, for your service team, customers can also still reach out who want to have custom solutions. Yes, yes, definitely. So we do, um, we work very closely, as I mentioned, with um, customers in the B2B field where we help them integrate our technology in, you know, 
potentially own products that they're now using or you know selling themselves. Great points. Let's come to the to the final questions. Uh, it's uh, closing the arc. Uh, we're going back to the beginning, talking about entrepreneurship and the hardships in entrepreneurship. When a young entrepreneur, it can be also an older person, so when someone who thinks about starting a company would approach you and you only have a couple of minutes left to give one advice, what would this advice be that you give to people who are about starting a new company? Wow. That's a difficult question. Um, okay, maybe I have three three points that I would, would probably add. Um, the first one that I'm really currently learning. And again, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for three years now, so I'm not at all experienced. I probably will still have a lot of more learnings and going through um, the next coming years. But if something that I start learning now more and more is actually really take time for breaks. Um, it is something um, you always read, you always hear, and then you're always like, nah, it's like, uh, you know, I have my dream, I want to do this, um, I need to work hard in order to achieve it. The people who said this said it for a reason. It is so important to take breaks. It's not cool to work um, all the time, every time. It's important to really take time to reflect. And that's just to give an example, Most of the times when I have been working for seven days a week um, and then I really take time off and start thinking about what I've done, the best ideas and also the most of the time the solutions for the problems that I've been working so hard on mostly come very naturally. And I think that is something that is really um, not valued enough um, to really take breaks, to you know really think about where you're going, why you're going there. And, um, you know, how to solve maybe that concrete problem you're thinking so hard about, which really brings me to my second point. When you start a company, really sit down with whoever you are founding that company and really think about why you're doing this. Um, at our company, we haven't done that. And I'm very lucky that, you know, we are still all friends. We work together. We work great together. But I know many stories where the founders were not as lucky because they just started and they didn't talk about where they wanted to go. Uh, once you start your first, um, you are raising your first financing round, things get very, very stressful. I mean, you know, it's always stressful, but things get more stressful. And then if you have um, one person in the team who says, I actually never wanted to become a unicorn. I wanted to, you know, grow slowly, just do cool stuff. And the other person is going for venture capital. That's a huge problem. Um, and um, I think the third part is, um, I don't know where I heard this, but um, just really continuously um, with the whole team talking about where you want to go and why you want to go there. And I think something that I still struggle with or I still see I need to be better is just continuously talking with your team and really trying to understand this is where we go. Are we all still aligned that this is the direction that we want to go? And if someone says, this is not the direction that I want to go, or I don't believe it, that, that there's no you know hardship in this, but you really have the capabilities of saying, okay, 
um, you know, but then we have to go separate ways and really um, continuously asking these questions. This is where we go. Do you want to work? Go with us. Uh, and if no, that is totally fine. But we have to have the discussion. Um, I think these are probably the three three steps that I've learned until now. I couldn't agree more. Taking breaks, I've noted on taking breaks, and uh, the other two points I would summarize in for myself in aligning interests with the stakeholders, so with all stakeholders, not only the investors, but also with the customers, with the employees, so that uh, the whole ship is moving in one direction and not in the twenty or thirty directions simultaneously. Yeah. 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 Great Very points. Important. Great points. Thank, thanks for sharing. Adrian, I'm at the end uh, with my questions. I'm very happy that you are part of the podcast. I think it's uh, really great what you are building and you have a great vision. And I can imagine that when you keep going and your team keeps going, that in the not so far future, probably we have these digital physicians that help us understand our health better and help us to stay healthy long in our lives. Thank you that uh, you pursue this quest. Of course, no, and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak uh, on here today. And uh, yeah, one of the things that I, I can say is that, um, yeah, and we are working hard, very hard towards the vision. And I can just say, um, this is a promise that I can give. Once, uh, you know, as long as we have the funds to do that and the energy to do that, we will work towards that goal. Um, again, I personally also believe that this is a future where we all want to live in. Um, and um, yeah, I'm very excited that I have the opportunity to work towards that future also with our team. I'm pretty sure you get the fuel you need to move forward towards the future. Adrian. Hopefully. Adrian, have a great weekend. Thank you very much for being on the show and we see each other soon. Yes, thank you so much and uh, stay healthy. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Did you like this episode? Then please, please subscribe to the channel. You help with the growth. Thank you very much and have a great day.